Okay, let's get a little bit of Tucker Carlson here. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. If you're used to thinking of Canada as our slightly dorky Arctic cousin, literally the last nation on earth where the mullet is considered a legitimate haircut, the country where American fads go to die, and of course you're used to thinking all of that about Canada because it's long been true, it's time to think again. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Canada, of all places, is a leading indicator. As the woke revolution spreads across the West, Canada is at the vanguard of it. Under Justin so, Trudeau, Canada has done every. So notice how he, he doesn't uh, trail down his voice. He keeps it up at a, a fever pitch, a high pitch of excitement. So you don't hear people talk about uh, a low pitch of excitement. People talk, the events today are at a high pitch of excitement. People are at a high pitch of excitement. There's a fever pitch of excitement. So with, with Tucker Carlson, you'll get some up you know, up intonation with his pitch as he goes through a sentence and he doesn't tend to trail off at the end of his sentences unless he wants to tell you about something sad. Everything to the maximum possible extent. It has criminalized political speech. It has banned self-defense. It's used the power of the state to squelch Christianity, all of it. So if you want to know what's going to happen next in the United States, it's time to look north. Canada is the ghost of our Christmas future. So with that in mind, it's worth taking a look at what is happening right now in Canada's schools, because you are certain to see all of it in your children's schools very soon. So this week, videos surfaced on the internet from a place called Trafalgar High School in Oakville, Ontario. That's right across the lake from Niagara Falls. These videos show a teacher called Stephen Hanna, who apparently has been employed at Trafalgar High for several years. Recently, Hannah decided to dress like a woman, or more precisely, as a grotesque caricature of a woman, not a real woman, but a kind of pneumatically inflated Marilyn Monroe lookalike. As part of his costume, Hannah strapped on a pair of gigantic prosthetic breasts, each the size of a 10-pound watermelon. We're not exaggerating here. They're visible from at least 100 yards away, if not from space. We'll show you the picture we are right now on the screen. But here's the thing. Hannah isn't doing this in private, in his home and restaurants and clubs. If he were, we would not be mentioning on the show because it would not be our business. Have fun, Stephen Hannah. No, Stephen Hannah is doing it in class, in front of children. As the Canadian journalist Jonathan Kay put it, Hannah has been dressing like no. this for a while, but only recently have students within the school gone public with this fact. So they've been enduring this for a while. Kay also notes that Hannah's costume is based on the style of Japanese internet pornography, which translates roughly into English as exploding milk porn. So what's going on here? We know exactly what's going on here. Let's stop pretending. Women may not see it right away because generally their lives are not defined by their sex drives. But if you're a man, you get it instantly. What is this about? It's about sex. Stephen Hannah is enlisting other people's children in his sexual fantasies. That's why he's doing this in class. Having an audience of children gives Stephen Hanna a sexual charge. He's getting off on this. There's no question about it. This is the guy in the van trying to give your sixth grader candy. This is the flasher in the park. This guy is a pervert. He should not be within 500 yards of children, period. He's a threat to children. Now, there have always been threats to children. In every society, there are people like this. And every society deals with them swiftly and very harshly, but no longer in the West. Now, people like this are not punished. They are celebrated and then protected. Trafalgar High School, which is public, it's funded by Canadian taxpayers, is vigorously defending his behavior and threatening anyone who notices. 
So it's the Halton District School Board, which oversees the school. They just sent us the statement and we're quoting. The school board recognizes the rights of the parents, staff, students, guardians, community members to equitable treatment without discrimination based upon gender identity and gender expression. Gender identity and gender expression are protected grounds under the Ontario Human Rights Code. Oh, the Human Rights Code. Really? Where are the rights of the kids? There are none. In other words, if you... Notice how he talks about, oh, the Human Rights Code. So he doesn't say, oh, the Human Rights Code, right? That would bore you and put you to sleep. But he says, rising intonation, rising pitch. Oh, the Human Rights Code, right? So as he goes up in pitch, it makes his presentation much more compelling. Complain if you're a parent who complains about Stephen Hanna enlisting your children in his sexual fantasies, you are the criminal. You are breaking Canadian law. For the most part, the Canadian media, the most supine media that speaks English, are siding with Stephen Hanna, the sicko. Other than the noble exceptions of Jonathan Kay, who we just quoted, and a small feminist blog called Redux, nobody is covering what Stephen Hanna is doing to kids sexually. The rest are effectively defending it. The Toronto Sun, for example, went with this headline. School board prepares for backlash over trans high school teacher. Oh, backlash. Trans high school teacher. He's protected. No, he's a freaking weirdo wagging fake breasts in the face of your children because it titillates him. And if you complain about that, you're the problem. So the problem is parents, not the pervert in the classroom. It's hard to believe this is happening, but we're sad to tell you it's not just happening in Canada. You see versions of it everywhere, including in this country. And to be clear what this is, children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Are you okay with that? Is any normal person okay with that? It's completely wrong. It's utterly outside the bounds of what's acceptable. It's not a close call. And yet suddenly teachers, licensed teachers, are bragging about it on social media. One person okay with that? It's completely wrong. I have had multiple students come out to me, not just with their sexuality, but also with their gender identity. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important to be out and loud and proud. I teach my elementary school students about gender identity. Some people are girls, some are boys, some are both, some are neither. I might tell this kid, we do have a flag in the class that you can pledge your allegiance to. And he like looks around and he goes, oh, that one? So again, if you were walking through the park with your kids and a stranger came up and started talking to them, say to your fifth grader, your five-year-old, or even your 14-year-old about sex, what would you do? Well, you would call the police, of course. That's not allowed. It's a crime because they're children. But teachers are allowed to do it and then to brag about it. And it's not stopping with classroom instruction all over the country. Adults are forcing children to attend drag shows. Watch.
So just to be clear, as if it's not clear, and somehow we're in such a haze that it isn't clear to a lot of people, these are sexual fantasies playing out in public. And on one hand, we've all sort of agreed, that's fine, go do your thing. But you are not allowed to bring children into your sexual fantasies because that's a species of child molestation. You can be fully clothed when it happens. It doesn't make it any less abusive or any less immoral. They're children. Keep children away from your sex life, comma, sicko. There was never any question about that. But now there is. And it's a bit of a tip-off that the same people conducting it are now trying to tell you that you can't use the word pedophile. Oh, huh, wonder why. Watch this. want to talk about minor attracted persons because they are probably the most vilified population of folks in our culture. You may have noticed that I'm using the term minor attracted persons, sometimes abbreviated to MAPS, instead of the more commonly used term pedophile. MAP advocacy groups like Before You Act um, have advocated for use of the term MAP. Um, they've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. That last clip was from the Protasia Foundation, which you think federal law enforcement was taking a very close look at, and its donors. Child molestation is a crime for a reason. It destroys people. You can't use children as sexual objects. Now, the first woman you heard from, Alan Walker, worked at Old Dominion University in Virginia. She was fired after the video came out. But shortly after, Johns Hopkins hired her as a postdoc. So she got promoted. She was rewarded for making excuses for child molestation. Hmm. And it's not just academics. You see book publishers aggressively trying to sexualize children. Have you taken a look at young adult books recently? Most are just stupid. Some are flat out pornographic. In Fairfax, Virginia last year, a mother informed her school board that two books in the school's library, one called Gender Queer, another called Lawn Boy, written for seventh graders, contained material that you don't need to be approved to think, wow, this is not, <laughs> something's going on here. According to ABC News, the book Gender Queer, quote, contains explicit illustrations of oral sex and masturbation. The novel Lawn Boy contains graphic depictions of sex between men and children. So why are they pushing this on kids? Well, of course, to prime them for sexual exploitation. And anyone who said that's a puritanical take on this, you're being hysterical, get real. Get real. What's the point of pushing pornography on children except to sexualize them and take advantage of them? And they're telling us it's not really child molestation? By the way, everyone in charge seems to be fully behind this. Oh, it's so dark. And then, of course, there's the medical angle. At Boston Children's Hospital, they're cutting the breasts off of healthy children. According to a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, Boston's Children's Hospital did, we're quoting, 177 gender-affirming double mastectomy surgeries in recent years. Roughly half of them were on girls, 15 to 18. Similar gender-affirming treatments, specifically chemical castration, were offered for many years in Britain, we're not the first to do this, at their infamous Tavistock Child Identity Clinic. Now, Britain's government just announced it is closing Tavistock. Why? 
because they've been sued by more than a thousand families who allege that, quote, children and young adolescents were rushed into treatment and therefore, quote, suffered life changing and in some cases irreversible effects. They should have known that. The data have been out for a long time, but people with a sexual agenda, not a political agenda, a sexual agenda, have pushed so hard to make this legal and then fashionable that we've ignored it. But the numbers have been there. In 2011, researchers in Sweden released the results of a study that lasted three decades. That study found that people who underwent, quote, gender-affirming surgery were 19 times more likely to kill themselves than people who hadn't, the general population. So instead of covering all this, that's not a story, really? Sexualizing children, mutilating their genitals because you get off on it? Our media is not covering this at all. They're encouraging it, and they're hiding the reality behind euphemisms. They're referring to castration as, quote, gender-affirming care. Castration of children. Gender-affirming mental and medical care for minors. Often provide gender-affirming care to transgender people. And gender-affirming gender care. Seeking to ban gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth. Efforts to restrict access to gender-affirming care. Life-saving gender-affirming care for transgender people. Life-saving gender-affirming care. Really, can you slow down a little bit and tell me what exactly that entails? Can you be a lot more specific? Can you bring pictures in? Show me what it looks like. Can you do that? What exactly are teachers talking to my kids about? What's a human sexuality lecture look like in my sixth graders class? Why don't you tell me? Speak slowly so I can take notes. The reality of all this behind the euphemism is horrifying. It's sexualizing children. And they go completely hysterical when you point that out because it's true. And the real question is, why is everyone else putting up with this? In a healthy country with an intact social fabric, neighborhood dads would mete out instant justice to anyone who even thought about sexualizing their kids. And if you doubt that, go ahead and try it in Bulgaria or South Africa or the Solomon Islands. Good luck. Let us know how that ends if you can still speak. People won't put up with it because the instinct to protect your children is the deepest of all human instincts, and it has to be. Of course, it has to be. But it's been all but eliminated in the West. Parents in this country and in Canada are far more passive. Why? Because they haven't recognized this phenomenon for what it is. They believe it's some kind of political movement, somehow related to the liberation struggle for trans rights, and therefore something you're not allowed to complain about or you're a bigot, and all the moms think you're bad. But it's not a liberation struggle. There is no liberation struggle. The battle for trans rights is long over. Trans people have rights. They can dress any way they like. And not only is that entirely legal, most Americans have no interest whatsoever in interfering with it at all. This is a fundamentally live and let live country. And it always has been. That's the deal we've always had. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and we'll both leave one another alone. And the overwhelming majority of the American population still favors that. Republican, Democrat, Independent, everybody's for that. But that's not what this is at all. These are not people who want to leave you alone or your kids alone. These are weirdos getting creepy with other people's children. That's exactly what it is. Say it. Say it. That's what it is. Now, naturally, Joe Biden, who showered with his own daughter, who said her sex life was destroyed by it, is now the lead spokesman for this lunacy. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom, on the playing field, at work, in our military, in our housing and healthcare systems, everywhere, simply everywhere. 
Today, we're announcing even more steps, but there's always more work to do to end the epidemic of violence against transgender women of color and girls of color, to ensure transgender seniors can age with dignity, dignity, to parents of transgender children, affirming your child's identity is one of the most powerful things you can do to keep them safe and healthy. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about how to keep your children safe and healthy, Joe Biden, Mr. Shower with his daughter guy. Are you joking? These are sex crimes, and the people committing them should be punished. Now, try and say that out loud anywhere but on Fox News. You can't. Why can't you? Because it's true. That's why. You can't say the true things. You can claim the earth is flat and no one gets exercise. But when you start saying things like all lives matter or sexualizing my children is a crime and if you keep it up, I'm going to hurt you because I'm the dad, say that, ooh, you're done. Libs of TikTok is being banned from the internet. Why? Because it showed documentary evidence of what was happening. Some people describe what was happening as grooming. We're not exactly sure what that means, but if it's sexually abusing children, yeah, that is what's happening. But the term groomer is now hate speech, says NBC News. A couple of months ago, the, these people, um, one is Libs of TikTok, another is Matt Walsh, uh, you have Chris Rufo, who you just mentioned. They've been villainizing and literally demonizing these doctors who treat these people for months now. And so in that time, you can just see it in their mentions. This, this sicko language, I've seen it a million times over because every time they tweet about these doctors, using these doctors' faces sometimes, and they'll, they'll, the, all of the, the comments are like sickos, demonic, satanic, pedophile, groomer. Yeah, they're being mean to doctors who castrate children, who cut the breasts off girls. Yeah. This is not only happening, it is being celebrated and aggressively defended by virtually everyone with power. It takes three steps back. We used to say, oh, our society doesn't care about children. That's not what this is. What you're seeing is a society that hates children. You would have to hate children in order to sexualize them because sexualizing children screws them up for life. Ask anyone to whom it's happened, period. No one should put up with this. No parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says, your duty your moral duty is to defend your children. This is an attack on your children, and you should fight back. Well, things are going pretty great in New York. On Friday, a man was caught on tape terrorizing a McDonald's in the city with an axe. No big deal. You won't believe what happened next, though. Our crime correspondent, Jason Rance, has that story for us this evening. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tucker. I guess it was... Okay, on Friday, so a man was... Let's, what uh, the law says, your duty, your let's moral to Tucker. duty, is to defend your children. This okay, so this is a professional broadcaster. His voice is not dropping, all right? He is engaged, keeping his pitch up. It's an attack on your children, and you should fight back. Right? He doesn't say, and you should fight back. He says, and you should fight back, right? Keeping up the energy, keeping up the pitch, right? Professional broadcaster here. Well, things are going pretty great in New York. Right, he doesn't say, and things are going pretty great in New York. Right, going down, he's going up like a professional broadcaster. He's walking up the steps with his pitch. On Friday, a man was caught on tape terrorizing a McDonald's. In okay, he was caught on tape terrorizing a McDonald's. So his voice is going up in pitch. Now, this is distinct from up talking. That's where you go up in the middle of a word, terrorizing 
a McDonald's, right? That's up talk, terrorizing a McDonald's. So in the middle of McDonald's, you go up, right? That's up talk. That's weird and creepy and disturbing. But if you keep marching up with your pitch, right, as you move through a sentence, that's compelling and exciting. In the city with an axe. Right, with an axe, right? Notice the difference between with an axe going up or with an axe going down, right? Down is depressing. No big deal. No big deal, right? Keeping the pitch up. You won't believe what happened next though, our crime course. You won't believe what happened next. Very different from you won't believe what happened next, right? Where you're walking down the stairs. So let's uh, welcome, let's welcome uh, Duvid into the show. Duvid, how's it going, man? What's new? Hey, thank God. So uh, interesting stuff on the voice lessons. I, you know, you you looked at my essay on the hero's journey in music, and uh, you know, it's somewhat related to what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you, Do you have any further further thoughts? Yeah. Um, are Are you familiar with what they call a bodkin in uh, in Hebrew? I'm not sure. It's a uh, you're kind of like a wedding singer, like a special Jewish ritual at weddings, usually by what they call like the mitzvah tants or on Purim, where a person basically tells story to, to a, a nigga in a Jewish song, and they'll take a popular song, and uh, you know, sometimes they'll be like a, like a roast, and they'll make fun of people, or they'll tell stories, and it, it's similar to rapping, but uh, you know, if you just think of any common Jewish tune, and then try to uh, put lyrics to it, put lyrics to it on the spot. And, and, and it's uh, in the Hasidic world one of the most uh, I call it like respected professions. If you heard like Lipa Schmelzer or certain names that yes. you perform at, yes. perform at weddings or even get to do it in front of uh, big rabbis, rabbinic uh, councils. So it's a combination, kind of like rapping, uh, except you know it's not rap. It's not rap. It's uh, melodic. And uh, it's probably like Tucker. If you were very musical, you could probably pick out the exact key and uh, musical notes. So, like, I don't know how much musical training you've had. Very uh, little. Very little. I haven't had specific musical training, but I did a lot of chanting. And if you, you know, chant it, if, if you sang, uh, um, you know, chord progressions, uh, you know, just like C, C minor, C, uh, F sharp and all these various things, you could actually train yourself to talk. And uh, actually, Barack Obama, President Obama, was uh, known to be extremely good at that. If you watch videos of him, it was like uh, like almost like a symphony, where uh, you know Barack, uh, Obama would uh, you know come up into this. Uh, I mean, God forbid, like Hitler. Hitler was extremely famous like that, where you get on a very high pitch, a repetitive notion, and uh, like I was mentioning about uh, congregational chanting, it gets the whole congregation worked up because you start in a regular, uh, you know, C, usually like you start at C base rate and then you slowly go up. And so if it's chanting, everyone starts singing and they start singing the higher notes. Uh, but even if you're just listening, if you're intently listening to one person and they start on like a C note and next thing you know, their whole octave higher, uh, I think there's been studies on it, uh, that your breathing 
and heart rate will match the person you're listening to. So if you're just watching Tucker, um, you might not notice, but uh, uh, you know it's very likely that your breathing and your heart rate ends up mimicking his breathing and heart rate. So he's excited, and uh, you know he's probably always like that. He's trained himself to do that. Whatever training he's went through, if it's uh, you know voice coaching or, or just uh, from you're talking and being a, a you know blogging head for so many years, uh, but just the viewer gets excited just listening to it. Yeah, I I know it's very pleasant listening to Obama speak. Not the words and not the philosophy or the ideology, but the intonation. There's a musical rhythm to how Obama speaks. There's a musical rhythm to how Richard Spencer speaks. Some people have it right. They they just compel your attention. Now, what is your vocal range like? Are you are you at all uh, gifted with with song? I have a good memory for music. I'm not a especially talented singer. I've done a lot of ch uh, chanting, and there's also another skill to talking on beat. So, like, I used to go to Indian temples. I don't know if you know, like the the cartel, the little uh, metal things, and it clap like. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you chant, uh, you know, even just chanting like Hare Krishna to music. You you learn to do it on beat, and chanting is actually a useful skill for talking. Where if if you thought about it, you do can you talk on beat, and uh, um, I think they call it like a metronome. If you play like the violin, where it just clicks at like you know eighty beats a minute, a hundred beats a minute, hundred twenty beats a minute, um, like the Microman. Some people talk very quickly. I think like Destiny is an extremely quick talker. Uh, but if you could learn to talk on beat and consistently, so whatever you're aiming for, like, you know, 80 words a minute, 120 words a minute, if you be uh, consistent about it. And it's something that really just takes a lot of practice. Yeah. So interesting story out of uh, New York City. We've got Talia Arami, a transgender woman who has left her position at a Brooklyn yeshiva after a controversy over her identity, right? So even in Orthodox schools, they're having challenges with the transgendered. So headline is, New York yeshiva asks transgender teacher to leave amid uproar over her identity. The instructor agrees to resign after community controversy, widespread harassment. School says parting was in an amicable and uh, professional manner. So she left Magan David Yeshiva in Brooklyn. She says, it's sad to see that some people want to derail our lives. We're questioning whether or not our entire lives are ruined or not. It's tough. And so what do you make of this story out of New York City? I mean, God forbid, I, I tried to talk with Charles Moskowitz about the topic, and we didn't get to the, you know, we, I mean, he wanted to talk about God forbid, uh, um, you know, like uh, whatever they call it, like story hour. Uh, drag, drag, drag queen story, story hour. hour, yeah. Yeah, God forbid. And so I was meant, you know, what what, what is the Jewish Torah opinion on it? And you know, in Halakha and Jewish law, there's cr clear prohibition. Like generally, like I said, like homosexuality is, most scholars would agree, is something that you have to choose death over where if someone's like commit this homosexual act, uh, which God forbid usually refers to anal penetration 
um, that's something you should die over. Um, there's also a prohibition to a man wearing woman's clothing. Um, but uh, there's also the fact that homosexuality percentage-wise is most common among Jews. And even like drag scream story hour uh, in these various things that, God forbid, there's a lot of Jews involved in it. So, you know, the question is, um, you know, besides for what does the religion say, why is it forbidden? Then why are so many Jews uh, involved in it? And, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, certainly if you're going to look at this as like a disease or, or a problem, for whatever reason, the statistics seem to show that it inflicts, it infects Jews worse than other people. I don't know if that's, you agree with the assessment or have seen the statistics or would agree that if you look at it as a problem, whatever reason, this problem seems to plague Jews more than other people. Well, that certainly seems to be anecdotally true. And there are also studies that seem to indicate that a higher percentage of, of Jews identify as LGBTQ than, than other groups. I suspect the difference, though, largely goes away if you rank it rank by IQ. So higher IQ people are much more likely to sexually experiment. Also, people in urban areas are much more likely to experiment than people living in rural areas. And the more educated, the more years of secular education someone's had, the more they've had the secular brainwash, I think the more likely they are to experiment. So I suspect once you take into account IQ years of secular education and living in urban environments like Los Angeles and New York City, that the big difference between Jews and non-Jews will considerably diminish. I, I'm not sure there's a big difference here between, say, Jews and Anglicans. Anglicans tend to have you know, very high average IQs, around 110, tend to be educated people. So I would think that the differences would start to minimize once you take into account IQ, years of secular education, and urban living. Yeah, but there could also be the case of, you know, like uh, Nathan Kaufness, of are there actually large centers of non-Jews like there are of Jews? You know, so we were talking about, uh, you know, just the the masses of Jews in urban areas where 90% of Jews live in less than 10 urban areas in America that uh, in Israel also where, you know, there's a huge percentage, I think the highest in the world of homosexuals in Israel that even if you controlled and you're right that, uh, you know, people who have the same social economic uh, uh, educational intelligence status have the same percentages, are they those people actually conglomerated or are those the people you're saying that uh, turn to be, you know, there's gays in, in every town and village. You know, if there's a few thousand people, there's probably going to be a few gays uh, and there might be self-selection of those type people to move to urban places. But uh, you know, like the Nathan Kaufness uh, um, response to Kevin McDonald related to this, that I don't think you have Anglos and other people in such large uh, uh, you know, conglomerations uh, living together in urban areas. Right. So there, there's a lot more inbreeding among Jews than, than among Anglos, uh, for example. And, and maybe that, that plays, plays a role here.
and also those just aren't so densely uh densely populated in Mm -hmm. urban areas Mm -hmm. and also there are more in certainly in traditional jewish life there are more male female distinctions so that uh, you you'll find more you know male only spaces female only spaces and so that might also conduce to some experimentation i would that god forbid that the the rabbi or the person who hired said he didn't realize that it wasn't a woman and you know god forbid like i've seen the you know some effeminate jews effeminate people in general and if the guy's wearing a shaitel and the rabbi just didn't even consider that it would have been a man uh dressing as a woman and he may or may not be homosexual could just be uh you know gender identity issues without homosexuality but i'm not sure if you saw in the story where the rabbi said it was a mistake and he didn't realize till after the person was already hired that it was a man I, I I think someone mentioned that, and so some some rabbis are pretty you know out of it. They're, they're not always the most uh, practical people. <laughs> so I mean, this must be an incredibly disturbing thing for him to discover. Yeah, and it goes back to uh, you know I think the, as I said, the yeshiva issue is kind of fall, falling away. It was a short time news thing, but it goes back to. Uh, the Republican support for yeshivas and, in, in, uh, you know, a certain intersectionality where, you know, yeshivas are generally homophobic. And even though that's not the issue in the yeshiva education, and there's legitimate complaints that uh, your yeshivas are pretty openly homophobic and of a religious uh, principle, uh, you know, anti-homosexual that uh, you you know, look at this and say, well, I'm going to support the yeshivas because um, I don't want this stuff in our public schools. And, you know, in order to fight critical race theory and the stuff that's happening in schools across the country, that even if it's not a direct parallel to what's happening in the yeshiva, it causes a certain intersectionality. And, you know, I saw like Ted Cruz uh, you know, Lee Zeldin, he's running on the issue. And historically, when this has happened in the past, there's been a lot of Republican support uh, for uh, yeshivas trying to, you know, make the intersectionality. Yeah, I mean, the more degenerate non-Jewish society gets, then the more reason people with, with traditional values will have to put up borders and walls. And then the more sympathetic I I am, to to them not being as tightly regulated by the state. So when I read that New York Times article, I was outraged that uh, Hasidic yeshivas weren't graduating kids who are competent in basic English and math. But then I see these transgender stories, and and then and then I'm not not quite as eager for secular government intervention in Hasidic schools when I just see the degree of the pause, the degree of the the filth that that goes on in in some parts of education and see how it's even penetrating orthodox schools it's horrifying absolutely horrifying well, yeah but there's two levels one you said like it's horrible that these Hasidic kids are so uneducated and are having these economic uh, um punishment from being uneducated but what are you going to do about it 
and saying, well, we're going to have the government regulate the schools. And if you, th you know, so is the solution. So, okay, it's a problem. It's a serious problem. You know, we should be trying to do something about it. But what's the solution? And if the solution is government uh, regulation, the government taking over the schools, is it likely that you're going to get the desired outcome from your perspective where you want to keep the certain, you know, conservative uh, family values aspects of the yeshiva? You just want them to be able to speak English and know basic math and uh, education. Uh, but uh, what's more likely to happen if the government comes in and regulate it? That uh, they're going to, uh, you know, see to it that they get the basic uh, educational skills that they need, or that they're going to force, uh, you, you know, God forbid, the culture wars on them. Right. That's that's a, a good a good question because I, I don't think it's at all clear that uh, increased government regulation to ensure that, say, all Hasidic schools teach a minimal level of English and math will just end there. It does open the door to non-Jewish culture and and the type of degeneracy that we've seen on on today's show. And then so, also parental rights. Mm -hmm. I mentioned I wanted to you know, bring it into the Ken Burns Holocaust documentary. I, I watched that actually earlier today in Two Speed. Um, but uh, you know, do people have the right to be? I would rather be poor than have my kids be part of a. Uh, what's going on and saying like, well, even if they're like, yeah, I kind of want my kids to have a secular education and be able to get ahead. Uh, but I'd rather my kids be poor and not get ahead in life than, uh, you know, than be part of a society if this is what society's like. And, uh, you know, do we want to extend that right to uh, Hasidim in New York? And then we think like the theme of the Ken Burns documentary, you know, God forbid, funded by David Rubenstein, which is basically... America didn't do enough to help the Jews. America didn't allow enough Jews in. America restricted uh, uh, immigration, knowing what was happening to the Jews. And you know, so if you're thinking, well, okay, like maybe we should have let them in, but uh, once we let them in, you're like, well, we should let them live their life as they see fit. And uh, you know, the Hasidim, a lot of the Hasidim uh, did actually come over after World War II. And uh, you know, like Borough Park, uh, Satmir Hasidim, uh, Hasidim in general, are the most likely to actually be Holocaust survivors uh, than even like the Russian Jews uh, that came before World War II. And they're saying, well, you, we, we definitely were bad. America was very bad for not letting them in. But then once they get here, we would have had to forcefully assimilate them. And then the question, well, why did people not, God forbid, uh, why were people skeptical of immigration? and saying, well, they're not really going to fit into our society. And once they're here, they're going to try to change um, our society. So it's interesting, those two debates going on at the same time, uh, you know, with the immigration where we're bad because we didn't let them in. And then at the same time, we're bad because now that they're here, we're not forcing them to assimilate. Yeah. That's an interesting debate. I'm just thinking back to 1930s, early 1940s America. It had astronomical rates of unemployment, 15, 20% plus. And so it was not in America's interest, by and large, to admit immigrants and Jewish refugees. I can see 
I can see that case. Uh, on the other hand, by not allowing them in, you, without knowing it, may be condemning them to die. On the other hand, we had, we had ships of Jews come come to America, and when they weren't allowed into America, they refused to, to dock and stay in uh, uh, places in the Caribbean. Right? There were there were islands in the Caribbean that were happy. The the, the other part of the island shared with Haiti, I'm forgetting the name of that country, they were happy to have Jews come and stay with them, but Jews didn't want to live there because it wasn't as affluent as the United States. So the what, what was that famous ship? Was it the St. Louis? St. Louis, yeah. Yeah, so hundreds of Jews came to America where they weren't allowed into America. They were offered the opportunity to stay on the other side of the island from Haiti, and they declined. So... It wasn't just to get away from Europe. They wanted a certain level of opportunity and uh, affluence, all right? They, they weren't just getting out, out of Europe. And so when I think about things from American, from an American point of view, they have every right to operate immigration policy completely in alignment with their self-interest, and it's not their responsibility to rescue Jews or anyone else who's not an American. Just like if I were married, let's say I'm married with eight kids, my primary responsibility would be to my wife and to my eight kids. It would not be to rescue people in Kenya or in Japan or, or to you know give money to some place in you know, South Asia after a massive tsunami, my primary responsibility would be taking care of my own. So too, I have complete sympathy for the American says, hey, our primary responsibility is to take care of our own. We should decide things like immigration policy on the basis of what's good for our people, for our country. And right now with 15, 20% unemployment, it is not good for us to be importing uh, more, more immigrants. So some uh, challenging ethical issues, but I, I just find it bizarre to think that uh, the Holocaust somehow was America's responsibility. I mean, America did more than any other country to end the Holocaust by ending the, the Nazi regime. And this idea that Americans should have been importing you know, more immigrants, more, more Jewish immigrants, when these immigrants often had opportunities to live elsewhere, outside of Europe, but not in the United States, and they didn't want it. They wanted to come to the place where they could have a, a really good life and a lot of opportunity. Any any thoughts there, David? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Like, from my understanding, actually, Russia did more to defeat the Nazis than the U.S. did, and Russia true, took true. in more immigrants, more Jewish refugees and immigrants than uh the U.S. did. It's just generally there was more opportunity. Jews preferred to come to the U.S. for a bunch of reasons. But I mean, the reality is that I think you know close to two million, um, you know, the uh, Jews ended up on the other side of the Russian border, and a large amount of those survived. And uh, you know, it was mostly Russia that uh, was more instrumental in the military defeat of the the Nazis and you think even Putin today in his war in Ukraine and his, his insistence that uh he's fighting against uh the Nazis and like Russia's the good guys because they defeated uh, the Nazis and saved the Jews from the Holocaust and you know that's been the narrative that generally the US and Russia have both spun 
and then to think a Jewish issue where instead of the Jews generally saying, you know, great thanks to the United States, it's more, you know, like you didn't do enough. Um, you know, you did a certain amount more than uh, other places, but uh, you really didn't do enough. And and it seems odd, um, and, and it might, you know, from the greater perspective of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know the larger Jewish organizations. I don't know if, you know, David Rubenstein or it looks like uh, um, Ken Burns actually married two Jewish women or, or you know, in junction with the Holocaust Museum. Probably like the New York Times has a general agreement with that and they feel like they want to decrease anti-Semitism, acceptance of Jews in America, and the biggest blemish on that is the Haredim. And they say, like, America, you should have taken these people in. And, uh, you know, because, uh, but, uh, you know, these Haredim, they just won't assimilate. And, you know, maybe they feel that uh, they could pressure the Haredim into assimilating. And, uh, you know, that's why I said that my claim was that, uh, you know, it was kind of like astroturfing that the New York Times was, you know, the Jewish uh, former yeshiva students are basically on the payroll of these larger Jewish foundations to try to pressure, to make it look like there's internal pressure to uh, raise uh, awareness or to change the yeshiva education when it's unclear there is. And then it also gets back to what we were talking about in Germany. I don't think we covered it where, you know, that uh, cantor ended up getting fired, although it appeared she was a cantor at a synagogue where it was majority converts and even the rabbi was a convert. Uh, but, you know, who are you, Luke Ford, as a convert to, uh, you know, be uh, questioning the Judaism of the Haredim? And you're saying, well, that's not the Judaism I signed up for. That's not what I think uh, Judaism is for. But it seems semi-related to that German issue. And I think it was semi-interesting that you noted that, uh, unsurprising that uh, that uh, she got fired. But I mean, if you're standing up there, you want to have, uh, you know, which side are you on? And you converted to Judaism. But there's a lot of different streams of Judaism. And, you know, do you get to stand up and uh, take a side? against another stream of Judaism, especially if it includes, um, you know, something like negative pressure uh, against the government. And, uh, you know, the irony of like Israel in that it's easier to practice Orthodox Judaism in America than in Israel, largely due to mandatory military service. And, uh, you know, so if you think that, you know, the Haredi, the Jews, they don't really belong here and they're on a temporary stop from Israel, but they can't go to Israel because Israel's at war or they're anti-Zionist. And, uh, you know, even back to those Anglo issues of assimilation is by assimilating to Anglo norms, did you actually become more American? Or can, you know, Yankel, Yankel Schwartz, who doesn't want to speak English or educate his kids, say to you, you are no more American than I am. I am just as much of a patriotic American as you are. And everything you did to assimilate to Anglo norms was meaningless in terms of your American identity. 
Right. So what, what does it mean to assimilate to American norms? So if you're leading an upstanding life that, uh, that non-Jews admire, then I don't think there'll be a problem. But if you're abusing or ripping off the system, then, then you'll get pushback. So it all depends on the behavior of th- these groups. If Hasidim generally lead upright, righteous lives and are productive citizens, they're not going to get nearly as much pushback. But one interesting thing about that cantor who got fired from a reform synagogue in, in Germany after she wrote an op-ed in a non-Jewish newspaper questioning the wisdom of handing over so much of leadership in Jewish life in Germany to converts is that it illustrates how you give up a considerable amount of freedom when you belong to an organization and when you're easily targeted. So if you're a professor, if you have a prestigious position and and being a cantor in in a big synagogue is a prestigious position. I'm thinking in Los Angeles, there's a there was a cantor, maybe still is, at Stephen S. Wise, who would give uh, singing lessons, music lessons to many of the top rock stars. So cantor can be a prestigious position if it's a, a big synagogue. So when you have the prestige, whether you're a broadcaster, a professor, a cantor, if you have prestige, that you're much more vulnerable to getting canceled. And so because she was a cantor at a Jewish organization, she had much less freedom of expression. We couldn't do this kind of show if we had a prestigious position with a particular synagogue because the synagogue would start getting all sorts of surahs if we say anything that upsets anybody. But we get to be free with our opinions because we don't have as many vulnerabilities. We're not tied down to representing one major Jewish organization, and we don't have children who we need to get into uh, Jewish day schools and uh, line them up for, for the best marriage prospects. So being being bachelors, we, we have a lot more freedom. Do you have any thoughts on the restrictions in freedom that come when you have, one, a prestigious position, and two, you're publicly identified with a Jewish organization? Yeah, I mean, definitely. You have to toe the party line. And you know, even just having kids in the institution, but yeah, having leadership, uh, the eyes are going to be upon you. And it's possible this cantor was trying to make a power move where she was trying to make a power grab. Like I should have more power in the community as a non-convert than these converts. And it backfired. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I know, I guess you know, may, maybe to ask you about your streaming direction where you just have kind of the personalities you, you like to follow as opposed to, you know, like the news, the most pressing things. Um, Cause the, I was thinking of, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, Mr. Girl uh, who, you know, interviewed the Holocaust professor from Ohio and uh, you know, was trying to express that uh, stereotypes and racism are based on characteristics that people have and the professor you refused and to say that and you know even talking um you know the are, are you familiar with god forbid mr girl no he, i mean he became a huge streamer he just got kicked off um a three-eighths jewish uh god forbid self-identified pedophile but not like a oh. criminal pedophile uh from portland oregon and he debated richard spencer and uh, he was having over a thousand live viewers 
uh, talking a lot with uh, Destiny, and then Destiny was getting streaming with Nicholas Fuentes, and who moved to Miami, and I guess Destiny lives in Miami, so they met up and he streamed it, and so Destiny got a lot of pushback for meeting up with uh, Nicholas Fuentes. So uh, Mr. Girl led the push to say, you know, like Destiny, like Nick, Nicholas Fuentes is a Nazi. You must call him a Nazi. That is what he is. And, uh, you know, you're, you're enabling uh, your Nazis and, and some of the most horrible people in the U.S. And Destiny had his pushback. And uh, you know, so I, I don't know if you followed any of this debate to like no, destiny no. getting together with nick fuentes so mr mcgirl was like the the head of the squad that was pressuring him to you know to label nick fuentes a nazi so then he you know in order to have that he had this history professor on from ohio state and uh he was just talking about world war ii in relation to the january 6th insurrection and you know i guess max is a three-eighths jew was you know well why did they you know why did uh, why was there anti-Semitism and you know presumably there's some truth to the stereotypes and the history teacher was like not ready to go there and then he was like well you know what you know can you give an example so he was talking like African Americans and crime that uh, you know FBI crime statistics and the history professor was like yeah I'm not so sure about that and uh, you know his point was well this guy's a history professor he can't say that. And he can't uh, legitimize to say, like, God forbid, the Holocaust was horrible. What they did was horrible. However, many of the stereotypes about Jews in society are true. And something like blacks and crime statistics, that uh, if you're a professor, you can't say that. Even, you know, the numbers, looking at the numbers, you you you, you can't uh, you can't say that or you're going to lose your job. And, uh, yeah, for, for like a Jew... Uh, you you have to kind of uh, go along. You have to, you know, Jews are very top heavy like that, where we have our donors and our rabbis and the whole community loves the donors and the rabbis. And you will get ousted from the community if you say bad things about the donors and the rabbis, like even to, um, Les Wexner, who, uh, you know, funds like a lot of the rabbis, uh, even the female rabbi at the downtown synagogue is a Wexner scholar. A lot of people have been funded by Wexner. And, uh, you know, even someone like Epstein, God forbid, is uniquely a Jewish criminal, partly based off of uh, the power of donations, where um, you're really not allowed to say bad things about people who give large amounts of donations to the community, or you'll be silenced, you'll be forbidden from holding any position of power and you might even uh, be shunned. And that's, you know, probably what makes that, you know, God forbid that Weinberg or, you know, Harvey, the, you know, guy you were covering recently in Hollywood or Weinstein or Epstein or Wexner, um, uniquely Jewish criminals, uh, because the community will silence people who say bad things about them. Right. I don't know many rabbis, many Jewish organizations that will turn down donations, even if they come from the devil himself. I'm not sure if it's... You covered that with that convert, God forbid. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I was saying, like, just thinking that you covered that 
with uh, that story of the convert and the guy who donated millions of dollars who, God forbid, is probably a rapist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I don't know if it's a bigger problem in, in Jewish life compared to non-Jewish life, but from my life experience, it's definitely a bigger problem in Jewish life than in Seventh-day Adventist life. So among the Protestants I grew up with, there would be far more reluctance to take donations from horrible people than than my experience and my knowledge of, of Jewish life. And yeah, I think it's even part of our religion. So they're saying like, you know, God forbid, um, you know, stereotypes or racism. And, you know, if you wanted to talk about that, uh, we'd say for a different time of, uh, you know, when racism is good or bad, but it's generally based on partial truths. And if it's exaggerated to say, okay, well, this trait or negative thing that you're noticing about this group of people is true. What do you do with that piece of information? And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of these things are built into our religion in terms of, uh, uh, you know, these codes of conduct of, uh, being very careful about what we say, uh, you know, definitely not saying bad things to non-Jews or the authorities and to, uh, there being a connection to, uh, you know, you know, like, uh, um, indulgences that, uh, you know, people who sin and donate money, that that is one of the recommended, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanahs next week. And, uh, you know, Shari Tshuva, Rambam, all of the religious literature on Tshuva says that if you have, if you've sinned and you want to make amends for your sin, that you should give public charity. And, uh, you know, that that's the method to atone for sins. It's uh, you know, basically embedded in our religion. Yep. Okay. Uh, good. Good show, uh, David. I'm going to move on for this evening. So I'll have you back uh, again this week, and we'll carry on these conversations. Thanks for coming by. Okay. Great. You have a great night. Yep. Take care now. Bye bye. Okay. I want to want to get back to the topic, which I haven't really touched on, but the importance of presentation and drama and melody in attracting and holding attention, and then. What type of characters are the best at producing melodic performances that compel attention? So Richard Spencer's probably the peak at this in the alt ride. He's got a strong sense of melody from his background in drama. Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend I have to. Like, this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestor, fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Those pieces of shit get ruled by people like me. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking town. Okay, so can't contrast that with the, the Queen affect the boundaries say, between English communities around the world? How could the death of the Queen affect the boundaries between English-speaking communities around the world? Wait, 
Come on now. I'm trying to play something else and it just froze on me. Bloody hell. Tr trying to run this high quality production. Okay, let's uh, compare and contrast, say, Richard Spencer's sense of melody and drama. I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome Greg, to Greg Countercurrents Radio. My guest today is the Golden One from Sweden. Okay, so Greg has a smoother tone of voice. He doesn't have the dramatic skills of Richard Spencer. He doesn't have quite the compelling nature of, of Richard's ability to keep moving up with, in pitch with a sentence that, that compels attention. It's just uh, much smoother, but not nearly as melodic Welcome and compelling. So thank you very much. We are going to be talking today about the recent Swedish election. And unfortunately, so do a lot of people. Okay, so again, you don't get the drama, you don't get the the rising levels of tension, all right? You hear phrases like, at, at a high high pitch of excitement, or a fever pitch of excitement, but you don't hear phrases like, at a low pitch of excitement, because low pitch connotes boring. So I was watching the Dallas Cowboys yesterday, they had an exciting game, and you didn't hear the Fox announcers say, uh, Cooper Rush throws to the end zone and it is caught by Noah Brown for a touchdown. Instead, it's Cooper Rush looking deep into the end zone, throws, touchdown, Noah Brown. So you get that rising pitch because that's what professionals do. They give you the rising pitch to try to convey excitement and try to compel your attention. So here, let's uh, Let's hear how a professional broadcaster like uh, Sean, Sean Hannity handles these things. Welcome to Hannity. And tonight, Joe Biden, your president, he thinks there's no inflation, no recession, no border crisis. And again, he's... So notice he's going up in pitch to compel your attention. ...said he would send U.S. troops to defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression. And again, his entire team had... To so he's been speaking here for about 20, 30 seconds and hasn't dropped in pitch once. This is not easy to do right? Everyone thinks that they can act. Everyone thinks they can host a talk show, but not very easy, right? Try keeping your, your speech at a very high pitch without uh, looking ridiculous. Try walking up the, the stairway with your pitch level to command attention. Not very easy to do. To correct uh, his record. And as for his mental acuity, as Joe stated, quote, the proof... And as for his mental acuity, as Joe stated, notice he's going up in pitch. Proof of the pudding is in the eating. Watch me. Joe, that's the problem. We've been watching more of his disastrous interview coming up. Also tonight, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin will be here with his plan to restore parental rights and education. The woke left are not going to like what he is proposing. We'll tell you all about it. Later, we have a major announcement that you don't want to miss. It's big. And also we begin tonight. So tonight we have a major announcement that you don't want to miss. It's big, right? It's big going up, right? If he said it's big, it wouldn't be big. It'd be boring. With Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who will join us in a moment. Late last week, the governor sent all of America's woke deeply. Okay, so last week, the governor sent all of America's woke. All right, so he's going up in pitch. He's walking up the staircase compassionate liberals into a fit of hysteria. Apparently DeSantis had the unmitigated audacity to relocate homeless and hungry migrants, provide them with food and... 
Okay, so Sean Hannity, definitely a professional broadcaster. The people who announce NFL games, professional broadcasters. Do you notice that they speak like this? There's the rising pitch. All right, so uh, Tom Brady, back to pass. Steps up in the pocket. He's got a bed. He's going long. Touchdown, Buccaneers. All right, so the excitement keeps building, 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 and it uh, compels your attention. So quite different from the more measured tones of Greg Johnson. I suspect he doesn't have the background in drama that Richard Spencer has. are really engaged in just pure apologetics and trying to cast sand in, in your eyes uh, when you want to criticize them. Uh, one of the... Where is Luke's rising pitch? His voice sounds straight. Exactly. I am not a professional broadcaster. I don't have Richard Spencer's dramatic skills. I, I don't have the skills of the people who do Monday Night Football, all right? So I don't have the, the vocal range. And I, I just I just stumbled onto this insight when I was watching some videos by Roger Love, a celebrity voice coach, over the last few days. And I heard him say this, and then I started thinking about it. I was, yeah, the rising pitch does compel attention. Now, I'm not trained in this. I haven't done this work so that I am able to consistently mount the staircase with my pitch. And it's not a matter of getting louder. And you certainly don't want to be straining your voice, right? But there does need to be a sense of excitement if you want to be a professional with what you're doing. So let's listen to a little bit more from Greg. One of the most common Jewish tropes that you will hear is that people who don't like Jews are just envious of them because they're richer and smarter. Okay, so that doesn't compel attention the way that uh, Richard does, right? This is kind of a, a flat level of pitch. Right. Uh, that they're resented for their virtues, not for their vices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you find this kind of apologetic uh, with Americans, America, in 2001, after the September 11th. So, Ricardo says, what is the intersection between Alexander Technique and rising pitch? So, Alexander Technique allows you to have less unnecessary strain and tension in your body, which will make it easier to breathe, which will allow you more breath. So, voice production depends upon your breath. So, vocal fry is when you run out of breath and you start, I can't even... I'm not good with uh, with voice production. I'm not good at imitating, but vocal fry is when you run out of breath and you keep pushing it like uh, Vivian, Vivian, who would come on, come on my show a few years ago, right? Often had vocal fry. That's when you run out of breath, but you keep talking. So Alexander Technique gives you the breath, but it doesn't doesn't give you the skill to speak with a rising intonation to ascend the staircase as you're making a point. Now, it doesn't prevent you from doing that either. It just is a technique for noticing how you do things and enable you to do them a little easier. So you have to combine Alexander technique with other voice production skills if you want to sound like a professional. In a world where live streamers will do anything for attention. Red scare is strong vocal fry. Right, so vocal fry, you run out of breath, but you keep talking anyway. Tax, that's going back more than two decades now. Uh, Americans were not using this as an occasion to reflect on 
maybe some imprudent policies. No, no, we were being attacked for our virtues, not for our vices, not for our follies, for our virtues. It's a, it's a common trope. It's a common trope. Okay, let's listen to Jordan Peterson. Well, I suppose it could go one of two ways. You know, one is that, and this would be a terrible thing, it's such, it's such bad timing in some sense, you know, I think for, for what happened today to have happened. Um, I'm a great admiral. Okay, so she's, he's talking here about the passing of the Queen where it's more, it's more reasonable that you'd be speaking with a down-the-staircase intonation of declining pitch because this is a sad occasion. So let's let's say let's try let's try Jordan on another topic. Court-like documents attesting to that. One written by someone named Xenophon, and the other by Plato. They're very interesting documents. I would highly recommend reading them. They're very short. And okay, uses some rising intonation there to compel your attention. The reason, one of the reasons I would recommend reading them, apart from the fact that they're fascinating, and 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 short, is that. You, you also get the sense from, from what Socrates wrote that because he had lived his life fully, you know, no holes barred in some... So there is some melodic quality here to John Peterson. There is some rising intonation which compels attention. Sense ...that he could let it go when the time came. And, and that's an interesting thing, you know, because, well, it's a question I think that we all wrestle with we should is like well is there a purpose to our life and well that's a hard question and then if there is a purpose well how okay let's go to real professional broadcasters more than like 1600 white students who abandoned the omaha public schools during the pandemic okay so this is keeping a high pitch a high level of excitement oh, wow accelerating a major demographic upheaval in this diversifying midwestern Wait, city. why would that matter right so this is eric striker talking with mike edock and they are compelling characters they've got that rising level of pitch right they've got some melody they've got uh, vocal variation that compels attention well, listen to this in 2012 16,286 students or nearly a third of the district were white according to district data following a steady drip of a few hundred students a year that number had fallen to 13,689 or just over a quarter in 2019 but when the pandemic struck the pace of white flight drastically increased in the fall 2020 1,000 white students left the district, more than double the largest single-year drop. So a tremendous amount of energy here from Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker. That's what makes them so compelling. And it takes a lot of energy to keep up your pitch, to ascend that staircase, right? It takes more energy to walk upstairs than to stay in place or to go down the stairs. Drop in the last decade. By the fall of 2021, just over 12,000 white students remained, making up about 23% of Omaha's public school population. My God, that sounds horrible. 23% of the public school system is white in Omaha. Before the pandemic, declines in white enrollment were offset by a growing number of Latino students in the Omaha Public School District. <laughs> so as opposed to saying uh, declines in white enrollment were offset by a declining number of Latino students, right? Notice how much more boring and less compelling that is when you walk down the staircase. I mean, offset in one way, but not compensated yeah. for. Right. The largest and most diverse K-12 public school system in the state of Nebraska. But the significant decrease in white students coupled with a showdown, a slowdown in the numbers of Latinx. Okay, so Stryker doesn't seem to have much of a background in voice or, or drama, so he tends to speak at uh, one, one uh, pitch level. So he doesn't have the vocal variety of 
I think, a, a Mike Enoch or a Richard Spencer. He will win. Yes. Which is why we cannot discuss yeah. this phenomenon, honestly. Yeah. It says here. So, so notice Mike's got more variety. He's got more upward pitch intonation. He is a more polished and compelling speaker than Stryker. The falling number of white students could carry grave implications in a place with a history of conflict over. Therefore, like in negatively, like, segre like this increased segregation negatively impacts minorities. I'm like, where did the white kids go and how are they being impacted? That never is looked at. So, because they're, obviously they're not being negatively impacted because it keeps happening. It's positively impacting. Now, it's negatively impacting the entire society because, again, it's the kind of thing where white people just are giving and giving and giving and running and running. The very fact that white flight is a statement and everyone knows what it means, means everybody knows what's going on. Every All right. So variety, some melody, some upward intonation. Mike Enoch is, is very good at uh, being a radio host. Everybody gets it. My thing is, like, if you pull your kids out of school because they're being bullied, there's a bad learning environment. Right. There's a, you know, it's, it's just like, you know what that is. Right, he speaks like an NFL announcer. So let's uh, let's try some JF Gutter P. To win, the victory has al already been obtained on the crust. On the cross, all that's left is for people to accept Jesus Christ in their heart. Do you accept Jesus Christ? This gives me no insight at all on why Christian nationalism is important. What makes uh, Christian nations better than others? And the ultimate, uh, and of course, this is all accompanied by the oblig obligatory, we are not hateful. If you, if you choose to accept Jesus Christ in your heart, it doesn't matter what. So a lot of monotone, at least he doesn't swallow his words, a little bit of melody. Ethnicity you are. And this is where the big lie is. It's that Christians have zero insight into okay, a little bit of melody there, a little bit of uh, upward pitch. Thank you so much, Duvid, $5 Super Chat. Great work, Luke. Happy Hebrew New Year's. May we all be sealed in the Book of Life for another year of peace, prosperity, and continued self-improvement. Why a nation is great or not. Christian comes as a kind of accidental cause, and Christianity comes as an accidental cause of great nations, but it is definitely not necessary and sufficient. Look, for instance, uh, Exhibit A to support my case, the Republic of the Congo. Congo has 95.7% of the national population Christians. 95% of the population in Congo accept Jesus Christ in their heart. Uh, it would seem that this is a more Christian. Okay, so he's not the compelling speaker of uh, Richard Spencer, but th there's a little bit of melody and some upward intonation, and he doesn't uh, swallow his words. Now, a, a master of musical speech is Kevin Michael Grace. Good afternoon or good evening, depending where, on where you might be. My name is Kevin Michael Grace, and this is the KMG Show for Thursday. August the 4th, 2022. So as always, uh, we will start the show. Well, as always recently, we will start the show to see whether uh, World War III has begun. Okay, notice how much more interesting when he says notice or notice whether World War III has begun. So you get that rising intonation. So there's a strong rhythm and melody to to. Kevin's spoken performance. He has a background in singing. You can hear that he knows about song. He knows about 
voice. He knows about rhythm and melody. And th there's a little bit of a sense that he's somewhat aware of, of singing his words. He's speaking, but in, in, in his psyche, there's this background that he has in singing, which makes him such a pleasure to listen to. And we'll look at Drudge. Aircraft carrier group moved towards island. Western powers can... Okay, still, when even though he's highly accomplished speaker, when he reads something, it's not uh, terribly interesting. But when he's in discussion with somebody, right, then, then you get much more of the joy of the Kevin Michael Grace melody. So listen to the difference here. It's much harder to do solo streams and maintain a compelling voice quality with rising intonation and sense of excitement. So listen to Casey the here. The starting point for a discussion of the one-many problem is probably not in the contest between Parmenides and Heraclitus, though that fragment... So, so Casey is giving, giving up his channel, right? And, and so you, you hear the voice and you kind of hear defeat. I mean, he put a lot of effort into his channel. He experimented with a lot of editing, but the vocal quality, the professional broadcaster sound is not there. And when he does the solo stream, it is such a contrast to when he's talking with other people. And the same for me, all right? I have no more broadcast or voice production skills than Casey, right? I, I am bedeviled by all the same problems he is. Commentary and unspoken dialogue may be a fine place to try to finish the conversation. Instead, because we have better texts and... Okay, so this is going to put most people to sleep, right? This is the opposite of, of compelling. This is the, uh, the opposite of grabbing your attention and holding it. We can presume that there was already something of a synthesis happening. We probably ought to begin with Plato's philip. Okay, so that obviously doesn't work, but compare and contrast when, when Casey went on somebody else's show and gets to have a dialogue. So... Casey, like myself, like Kevin Michael Grace, J.F. Garapi, much more interesting when in dialogue rather than when reading something. And all that, yeah, I can't seem to get back to it. Would I'd have to like Oof. cut out part of my brain to get back there? You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally like you know do. what you mean. Yeah, I totally yes. know what you mean. And it's yeah. weird to me that like, like, uh... so hear that, right? I totally know what you mean. Notice how much more alive, how much more compelling. He is when he's in dialogue. I totally know what you mean. It's the very opposite of the the emotions that were given out when he was doing a solo stream reading aloud. I know that you get it. Like I can, you know, yeah. you know that I get right. it. I know that you get it. I mean, notice how emotionally engaged he is, how much, you know, more fun it is to listen to, how much more compelling it is when he's talking to people as opposed to doing a solo stream. Right. I know that yeah. you get it. But like, we also know that there are people who kind of like, they they wouldn't, feel that vibe they'd be like what do you mean right you know? right and yeah, that, that's about? so strange to me <laughs> who are you it's like this is this is like my soul is involved here how do you not understand yeah that? yeah mm. yeah and my and so soul kafka does kafka can work on all of those levels so my soul is involved how can you not understand all right this is casey at his compelling best but like like many of us like me we need other people right just doing solo streams where you read aloud doesn't really cut it. So that's this is where the thing. This is why, like, the whole based thing, kind of circling back to that a little bit. Whatever that means, I think based based just means you're at home. Right. That's all right. it means. I, I am think, based. I guess my point I am is, at I, home. I think that's it's all it means. harder to actually. It's the Germans have a word gemütlichkeit. 
What's that means? Means like you're feeling like you're at home. Okay, that's all it is. That's all base means. Okay, and that's that's great. I think my where Kafka kind of fits into this is like recognizing that that how difficult that actually is to do. Like it's not just about like especially in Twitter in modernity. Right. Exactly. You've been past there is no home portal. And you can't, yeah. it's like the, it's the, like it's when you pro- rent a car at the airport and you go over the spikes and you can't back up. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like my yeah. car belong, like I belong back there. Like, how do I, how do I get right, there? Right, 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 right. Yeah. That's my, that, yeah, that's a very good uh, description yeah. of modernity. Yeah. yeah and by the way, is. before we go on from that, like what a good analogy, Brad, like you're clearly <laughs> a writer. I want to say that like that, that I mean, obviously like that is one of the things I can't, I was reading one other thing today and I don't forget what the source was, but I mean, Kafka was very aware of what he was doing in terms of using metaphor and thinking. About- uh, just that is how much more alive, emotionally involved and, and interesting he has to listen to when he's talking to people that he likes. So Let's uh, tune in to perhaps a little uh, Jared Taylor. Paranoia and panic, and then at the same time, they're apparently uh, enjoying white privilege. It seems to me that you guys at least ought to get your story straight. Obviously, obviously, white people have been the majority in this country. All right, so lots of melody, very pleasant to listen to Jared a long time and if current trends continue they will cease to be the majority they're told over and over and over again that they should celebrate diversity what i would like to know is why white people should be celebrating their dwindling numbers and decreasing influence so why should white people be celebrating their dwindling numbers right so you're getting some upward intonation he's he's climbing the staircase and compelling your attention only could be tricked into thinking that that is something to celebrate. And I would, I would defy you to find any non-white country in which the majority, if it were threatened, could be tricked into thinking in those terms. Okay, let's uh, try Kevin McDonald. Working memory, which seems to be very important for uh, understanding how intelligence works. Uh, and then we'll talk about the correlates of general intelligence, why it is so important in daily life, in, in academic world, and in school, and everything else. And if I have time, I'll talk about analogical reasoning a little bit. But um, first, talk, uh, first, I want to start talking about evolutionary psychology. Um, the basic uh, proposal that evolutionary psychologists have uh, made is that the human mind, the, the cognitive architecture, to use a fancy word, was, was designed to solve recurrent problems that our ancestors faced during uh, during our our, uh, our our time as you know prior to the, the present, and what I mean by recurrent things that happen over and over again, things that, for example, humans have always had children. So he's got enthusiasm and, and he's got energy, but not not a particularly smooth and, and adept uh, public speaker. So the, the, the expectation would be that humans would have certain parts of their mind, certain mechanisms that are, that are designed to solve problems to, for, 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 uh, for, for, you know, uh, um, in that area. And, uh, but also just with, with, free, with, with, uh, with the world of, of, of objects. You know, we have tables and chairs and, and you know, various three-dimensional objects. We'd expect our mind to be able to uh, process those. Okay, so let me play a little bit more. 
Sean Hannity, so you hear more about how a, a pro does it. Surplus scores of vacant hotel rooms that we checked online. We found uh, rooms available for 120 or more. They only had 50. And what about the thousands of unused rooms and bedrooms in the island's empty vacation homes? That would be, by the way, including Obama's 38. Right, so how about deep left joke Ken Brown? I think this is the best time to do a video on okay. Patreon. Right, boring. Uh, we're not on Patreon, but to do it on the subject of Patreon. Downward, downward and intonation. What that means and what that going means down the to staircase. Me. And I'm going to try to find here the comment uh, that was, I think, James. He said, James Spencer says, can you set up a Patreon where we can support you and maybe patrons can get access to your past videos? And, you know, part of me wants to say yes and part of me wants to say no. I think the yes column, I think everyone... Okay, so when he gets a little bit of emotional connection to his words, you start to get some rising intonation, some, some rising pitch. But generally speaking, a lot of going down the staircase, falling pitch as he speaks. So right now he's in a very boring monotone voice. He's speaking with kind of a Kermit the Frog voice. For years has, has been putting, putting it in the yes column. And I've been, I've been against the yes column. And I'm still against the yes column, but I'm questioning. I'm, I'm being skeptical. I think part of my moral authority has derived from this idea that I'm not doing this for money. And so I can compare myself to other people and say their biases, they're in it for themselves, they're in it to make money, and I'm above that and I'm better than that. I don't know if that's entirely true. Um, I think I do... No, not entirely true. It's uh, entirely delusional, all right? So... When you see yourself as the hero of your story, probably delusional. What about... Even uh, if we did achieve what we wanted with a very small... Okay, Stefan Molyneux. All right, we're talking here, professional professional broadcaster, right? That excitement, that rising pitch, walking up the staircase. All state, we'd just be resetting the clock back to 1776, and it would roll forward exactly the same way again. Hi, I'm Matt Welch. I'm here for Reason TV at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, and I am pleased to be joined today by Stefan Molyneux. Uh, you are the founding hoo-ha of, tell us about your radio station. It's Free Domain Radio, sort of Free Domain, one word, freedomainradio.com. My basic argument is the consistent application of the non-aggression principle and a respect for property rights leads you to a stateless society, you know, kind of like it or not. And so you could call that sort of anarcho-capitalism, the anarcho being no rulers, uh, right, so some musicality, some melody, some rising intonation. He's a compelling speaker. And the capitalism part being a respect for property rights. This seems to be a growing tendency out there in the world. Is that your impression too? Okay, so Matt, not nearly as compelling. His voice is kind of stuck. Uh, some downward intonation, a uh, little bit of Kermit the Frog voice. In America, there's more uh, discussion along these lines. I think the way that it's been going is that there was hope <laughs> a long time ago there was this little flower you know and the state has just come along and squished it the energy that that was provided to the movement by mises by rothbard by rand by you know all of the real founders of the movement i think gave people a lot of hope and and the you know the goldwater campaign the reagan movement uh, even the gingrich movement in the 90s people had a huge amount of hope that we could use the lasso uh principles to bring down this charging bison of the state 
And I think in sort of the 20, 25 years since there was a real resurgence in libertarian political action. Okay, definitely a compelling speaker. Let's uh, hear Eddie Nowicki. A lot has been made recently about uh, characters in movies who, uh, who people, especially men, especially young men, can relate to. Uh, and this also applies to older men who still are young at heart, I think. Um, and uh, this has been called the literally me type of character. Like, that, that guy is literally me. And I don't know where this phrase, literally me, uh, officially started. I, stu- I first started hearing it from um, a, uh, a... So, voices flat, voices in monotone, n- not uh, professional broadcaster quality. Film um, aficionado who goes under the, the, the handle of Kino Corner, and he has a... But not, not unpleasant to listen to. Right, he articulates his words. He doesn't die off at the end of a sentence. The uh, YouTube channel that's worth checking out. Um, I like the guy. I think he's got some good insights. Um, All right, but you do feel the the depression that's kind of underneath Andy Nowicki. Like he will start off with some energy, but then quickly relapses into depression. But. The, uh, the, the literally me character is someone who you you uh, relate to even though he's uh, obviously highly imperfect. In fact, it's the fact that he is highly imperfect that makes him relatable. The fact that there's a, a certain desperation about him, that he ardently wishes to... Uh, accomplish some task to bring about some uh okay so you start sinking into the depression he's able to keep up some energy for for a minute or so but then relapses into depression so whoa short pod colin liddell the ascension of charles the third hello i'm colin liddell and this is the okay so you get some rising intonation there hello i'm colin liddell okay he's going up short pod a brief and succinct podcast commenting on the events and issues of the day and today it is the 9th of september 2022 yesterday queen elizabeth ii monarch of the british empire of uh, great britain northern ireland the falkland islands few islands dotted here and there okay so you don't get the drama the melody the the compelling nature of say a a richard spencer going off also the queen of um canada new zealand australia and possibly a few other small countries passed away in general this is quite a disturbing event for the world because in recent years the world has become increasingly unstable we've got a war in the ukraine that could escalate into a nuclear war potentially we've got um, the COVID outbreak we've got the rise of china we've got all this geopolitical instability and uh, we've got the breakdown of old certainties about race and gender etc so massive change has been going on and the queen was kind of seen as a 
symbol of um, some kind of continuity, a comforting presence, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the Queen is now gone, and uh, we are now out of the Elizabethan era into the Carolingian era. With uh... Okay, we get some rising intonation there. But uh, generally speaking, he, he speaks at, at uh, fairly much of a, a monotone. So let's uh, try out Millennial Woes again. I'm sure we'll, we'll get the, for the, I'm sure we'll we'll get enveloped in the depression. The dark stuff that you know people talk about, where people are getting sterilized and and so on. What I am up for is encouraging. So why does Millennial Woes, you know, love dark topics because? It reflects what's going on with him, right? We tend to be attracted to particular topics because they they match the patterns that, that are going on in in our life. So, high IQ people, creative people, talented people to have children and to have more children than they otherwise would have. I don't see what's wrong with that. I, I don't. Right, so you've got dropping intonation. He's walking you down a staircase. You you gradually feel enveloped in his depression. Understand why any society wouldn't do that? It seems insane because what we've got is the very opposite. So we've got a welfare intonation. state that encourages the lowest IQ people and the stupidest people and the most irresponsible people to have many kids. So when he can emotionally connect to his words and get excited, he can raise himself out of his chronic depression briefly? Uh, I mean, it, even on a moral level, I don't think that is a good idea. But on a more practical level, it's going to lead to your society becoming less intelligent. Obviously. Now, yeah, the average IQ is obviously going to lower. How the fuck? Okay, so now we're getting some melody, some upward intonation. He's emotionally connected to his words. Is that a good thing? How on earth is that a situation that we should tolerate or, ex or celebrate? It's crazy. Uh, I think it's only natural to want your group, your people, to want to become as good as they, as they can. And notice how much more interesting it is now that he's got that rising intonation. It's natural to want your people to get as good as it can. Right? Notice how much more interesting that is than it's natural to want your people to get as good as it can. So obviously, you should encourage the, you know, the capable people to have more kids. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that's just a society working well. You know, gradually so Millennial Woes has quite an arts background. I assume he's got something of a drama background. So there is some rhythm, some melody, some upward intonation at times when he can emerge from depression. Proving the, the gene pool. I, I mean, this idea that we should just leave it to the winds of fate, I, I don't really understand why. Uh, I mean, I know that Sargon and uh, you know, libertarians would, would say that, but they're dreamers. They're just wrong. They're just, they're just living in cloud cuckoo land. Yeah, so we're getting more rhythm and uh, more, more movement here in his voice. He becomes uh, interesting and compelling there. So what about Stephen J. James? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another video. It's an early morning and we're here. Okay, so he's walking up the staircase. He's got a compelling quality to his vocal presentation. So give us an update on the weed smokers, Dan. 
Here we are everybody. They're keeping it pretty tidy really. Lots of fire activity, that's a that's a very responsible fire pit there. I'm not sure about this dried wood at the edge, but they've put bricks around it. We've got a shopping Okay, let's hear Stephen James on Academic Agent. The penny finally drops for Academic Agent about Russia. So Stephen James is excited about what he's doing. Come on. Let's, uh, let's get to it, Stephen. If you've been consuming a diet of exclusively Coach Redpill and the Duran and Scott Ritter on YouTube, then you are convinced that there's no way on earth that the Russians could have even faltered. Right, so he's far more interesting than someone who's reading. So Stephen James does very little reading on his live streams. There's a conversational quality, there's some musicality to his presentation. Despite billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of US dollars and every nation on earth's dollars, and all the countries of Europe banding together and scrambling around in their backyards for weapons to send over there. Even whilst we knew this was going on, if you're consuming this diet of these other people, you're led to believe that there's no way that that is ever going to even stop almighty Russia. And so a few of us weren't so convinced. And we're pointing this out a while ago, but it never really got through. But on that show... The penny dropped for academic agent talking to this guy, Paul Fahrenheit. Okay, so this is someone keeping it real. He's speaking from his heart. It's, it's not just some kind of artificial presentation. It's not just uh, reading things aloud. Let's hear what uh, Godwinson sounds like. It says, uh, Millennial Woes is innocent. It's the Godwinson Live News Alert. Now okay, all right. This is a, a compelling character, right? Uh, far more compelling and, and far more polished than uh, Millennial Woes, the guy he's imitating. Oh, <clears throat> we made a video covering Millennial Woes law yesterday and then Sargon afterwards. They've come back from the dead with a new grift. Millennial Woes is a guide to culture. This is what he's planning on doing right now with his time. He's going to give you, Western man, a So notice, rising intonation. It's it's fun listening to him. There's there's a level of excitement here. Guide to life but before he fully embarks on the new grift he wants to tell everyone that he is a free innocent exonerated man and whatever godwinson's telling you whatever accurate law godwinson is putting out into the ether is to be completely turned away call godwinson a liar an enemy of the people i think he actually does use the word enemy of the people so we're going to get into this i'm not going to press so I get to suspect this guy's got something of a drama background. Now, what about Otto Paul? Let me fast forward a little bit. Uh, somebody respond in chat if, uh, okay, but, Jared. Uh, okay, from, you hear, uh, hear the depression, the defeat. New York City has swallowed uh, voice. responded that my audio uh, is... Uh, Monotone. He says good. Let's just say probably adequate given my technology here. But 
as long as people can understand me, I'm not going to make a, a big deal out of it. Uh, so I haven't done one of these in a long time. Um, I've, uh, I've had a career switch, at least for my day job. Um, no longer teaching, and I'm very happy that I'm no longer teaching uh, K through 12. Uh, I was teaching mostly uh, seventh grade uh, history of state of New Mexico, um, and the topic is fine, but uh, I'd rather just not deal with anybody under the age of 18, uh, if, other than my own uh, child. Uh, as far as I can, the rest of my life. All right, so um, I've been doing well. I uh, actually enjoy uh, my new job far more than I thought I would. Uh, I wish it paid a little bit more, but, uh, you know, some money is better than no money, so I'm not going to complain too much about that. Ah, some rising intonation uh, there. Just uh, steady work, so. But, but generally a defeated sound, monotone and a lot of downward intonation. Now, Claire Core tends to speak beautifully. And, uh, you know, there's no middle ground to it. Because... So here she is discussing her secular You are a timid man that's afraid <laughs> right, to, to stand up to your Christian overlords. Right? <laughs> this is her argument. If you, if you disagree with her and you say, no, you're just afraid, you are just afraid to call people to the show. Okay, this is a good speaker. He's very alive, but let's uh, let's get Claire Core. Here's a message for returning subscribers. Compelling. Wow. I mean, notice that the tension. 10, 12, 15 seconds of silence. This is her message for There's returning the subscribers. For me too. Okay, this is compelling when she starts speaking. Have a message for returning subscribers so, a little bit of rising intonation and i thought i would craft a message especially for returning subscribers the questions i invite you to ask yourselves are all already typed out in the description box But I know I would have to read it out to you because not everyone bothers with the description box. Indeed, I have myself been known to completely ignore that. So the question I invite you to ask yourself is, have you shared any of my videos with anyone you trust? Yeah, so a nice, nice rhythm there from Claire Core. Let's uh, check it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Trying to get uh, Dennis Dale on here, but uh, he doesn't seem to be speaking. So let me try Greg Johnson. People who might ought to reflect on their own culpability for the bad things that happened to them, they simply go to the envy line. They say, ah, I'm being persecuted for my virtues. Uh, it's not always the case. And there are a lot of Nietzscheans who immediately go uh, for that envy uh, card. Uh, for instance, uh, Bronze Age Pervert. I made a little comment about Bronze Age Pervert. Uh, basically, somebody was using him as 
uh, rationale for anti-intellectualism. And I said, and my, my comment was, well, you know, I, I threw away his book. I, I couldn't finish it. I tried, actually tried twice. I couldn't f finish it. And now you're telling me that was the whole point? To yeah, I had the same reaction to Bronze Age Pervert. Could not finish his book. It was just uh, just so distasteful. and uh. To basically make people just give up on books. Books are gay. Uh, it, well, if that's the point, it really worked with me because I, I tossed the book before I even finished it, right? It was sort of a joke. Uh, well, anyway. Okay, so we're getting some rising intonation, some musicality, some melody here. Anyway, he was not amused. He he saw this. He's one of these people who follows every little mention of himself out there. Yes, I remember that when I said some negative things about his book when I was hosting a show with Kevin Michael Grace. We did a weekly book club. We chose a Bronze Age Perverts book one week. I said some negative things, and yeah, he, he found out right away and had some. Uh, strong strong opinions about that there. and he saw it and he put up a post uh accusing me of basically being jealous which i just thought was rich uh and uh no no not jealous not jealous in the least of bronze age pervert just didn't think all that much of him and right so some musicality but not the not the drama level of the of a Richard Spencer. So let's see if we get some Dennis Dale. We got this poor guy here. Okay. Trying to bail him out. Okay, so yeah, he's excited. There's some emotion connection with his words. So all of us sound much better. The the non professionals among us, the the Dennis Dales, the Luke Fords, the the Godwood podcasts. We sound much better when we're emotionally engaged with what we're talking about and we're talking with other people as opposed to when we're just reading aloud. We you know, know there's you, no, you, no black folks to Detroit, so that's pretty safe. <laughs> so he tells me, yes, rural Iowa is more of a threat to him. He would feel, not just that, he would feel safer on the streets of Detroit than on the streets of a rural Iowa town, you know. But he really just... He really just lives in a room somewhere with a computer, so he does. It's, all, yeah. it's all fantasy. Wait, is he talking about, is he talking about David? Yeah. That guy, in fact, the Zen master Jewish guy who is gone now because he got furious. He was funny, speaking of masculine. Wait, he's talking Gosh. about What David. James and Dennis are talking about is that last week James appeared on a live hangout with Luke Ford, Dennis, Dale, and a few others, as well as like a live audi audience, a sort of virtual audience. We thought we'd have Dennis on this week to continue that conversation but in the more old-fashioned technology <laughs> we do it on <laughs> skype with just the three of us so yeah, i'm sorry about our spurgy audience they're just so <laughs> focused on this they really are and you know and on the worst questions you know right now i mean i say the worst but the toughest questions you know which is great luke is an orthodox con converted jew calls himself alt-right and he's got like half of his guys are nazis and the other half are jewish wait wait wait! i don't think i've ever called myself alt-right i'm pretty sure i have never called myself alt-right i am interested in the alt-right or i ha was for a time but never have claimed to be alt-right people who come Gosh. to see the freak show it yeah I, i'm pretty much a a conservative, a paleo card, probably fairly in alignment with, say, a Paul Godfrey view of the world. It's weird. I saw the, I tuned back in for a while later on when I think it was washing dishes, and there was 
uh, a Jewish dude that was talking with you and I think another guy that wasn't Luke right. about you know, why uh, America has to be multicultural and uh, oh, we should all be speaking Chinese and German and everything. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I was, uh, uh, yeah, so I was, I was kind of wondering. Uh, yeah, it's, it's such a freak show in there right now. I, I don't mean to denigrate it, but it's kind of a freak show. That guy, in fact, the Zen master Jewish guy who is gone now because he got furious. He was funny, speaking of masculinity and aggression. This guy had this whole thing where he would he prefaced everything by saying, I don't mean you any harm. You know, I have no animosity toward you. It was just this thoroughly passive aggressive, as far as I saw it, style that this guy had. And just constantly reminding us that he's, he's totally serene inside and he feels no anger toward anybody. And then you'd get into these conversations and you could just see it bubbling to the surface underneath that mask, you know, that this guy inside was raging more than anyone. He was a fascinating he, character. He was the fellow that I re remember him admitting to uh, not having any experience with with black people, for instance, with, not with black people, yeah. but with uh, with rural white people. And he was imagining that he would be very intimidated and harassed and everything. Rural white people are scarier than black people, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it was. <laughs> He's like he, he's sure that he would be much safer around black people than he would be around these rural white people. And the way he discussed it was from the point of view of having an alienated opinion. It, there was like nothing in his discussion that even touched upon reality. Right. No, he yeah. wasn't talking about any black folks. He was talking about the streets of Detroit. Okay. <laughs> we had this poor guy here okay. and trying to bail this. him out. We, you we know, know there's you, no, you, no black folks to Detroit. So that's pretty sweet. <laughs> so he tells me, yes, rural Iowa is more of a threat to him. He would feel not just that he would feel safer on the streets of Detroit than on the streets of a rural Iowa town, you know, That's but he crazy. really just, he really just lives in a room somewhere with a computer. So he it's, does. All, yeah. it's all fantasy. <laughs> oh, 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 I, uh, I love having face to face conversations with people like that. It's always so much fun to unsuccessfully try to comfort them. Yeah, uh, I just I just go along with whatever their opinion is. When I meet people like that, uh, whatever they believe, I pretend to be believe it and agree with it as much as possible. Like I said, Dennis has a pleasant speaking voice. He's got some musicality, some rhythm, some melody. You know, just so I can uh, watch it all derail farther down the conversation when I slip and they get an inkling that I'm some evil creature. <laughs> Somebody described our life here in PC current year America as being living under occupation, at least if you're maybe a white male like us, uh -huh. kind of living under occupation. You have to be careful what you say. You have to be careful what you do. Right. So Dennis Dale has has the voice of a radio announcer. Yeah, it's something awful. It, it really is. It, uh, James, you wrote about yesterday all the TV. Well, I put, you posted it yesterday. All the okay, let's get a little more here. Uh, from we could tie it back into the cults. Like, because uh, you know, like I, I, I'm, I was part of, you know, many in in the good way. Which last week I wanted to revive cult in the positive manner, not just the negative way that cults are thought of today. But yeah, I was a member of multiple cults, Hindu and Jewish cults, and a lot of those cults were hereditary cults, where the cult leader 
was based on a lineage from... Uh... So Duvid just has this compelling character about him. Part of it is just he's so smart and he's continually saying unexpected things. Uh, you know, generations or even thousands of years going back and we'll have like these handshaking ceremonies where even your average Orthodox synagogue will have these handshaking ceremonies where it's usually all men, but like everybody after the service will wait in line and shake hands with the head rabbi. And it's kind of this uh, confirming uh, position. Like, you know, we're, we're all in basically the same direction. If it's like a real in-life cult where like everyone's going to, you know, so to say get buried in the great same graveyard, go to each other's weddings or, uh, you know, life cycle ceremonies or like Hindu cults like that, where it's basically a complete commune of people who live the same way of life and are going to intermarry between each other and, you know, go to birthing and funerals of, of the people in the congregation. So you have these, you know, like, uh, you know, ceremonies where you know, basically, you know, maybe everyone will go and bow down before the guru in the East, or if it's like a rabbinic thing where you just go and, you know, shake hands with the rabbi multiple times a week in front of everybody. And, uh, so the same thing is happening, what you were mentioning in these uh, chats, like in, in these, uh, you know, these internet gurus where, where, where it's basically like, yeah, they want you to bow down to recognize the authority. So you say, okay, if you're not willing to bow to Brundle, we know that you're in a different power structure than we're in, and we could just move on. You know, saying like, she's not a member of the cult. You know, she refused to bow. And they might still deal with you within that, but there's these uh, ritualistic ceremonies of... Okay, summer of 2018. And uh, Kyle, I'm just going to have to put you on hold. I've got my old friend, uh, Jim Goad. We've been buddies since 2002, I think. Okay, so high pitch level of excitement, but uh, something of a monotone there, 40. Word for word, Jim Goad is the greatest writer in the world today. Jim Goad, how are you this <laughs> evening? I'm spectacular. Hello, Luke. Ah, so yeah, Jim Goad, very accomplished speaker uh, beautiful rhythm melody to his speech it's great to it's great to talk to you yes it, it, i mean compare and contrast how smooth jim sounds to to me it's been a, it's been too long so uh we, we've long. gone back a long time we've always got along really well which is which is curious well, so you, you didn't uh, set a guy who called me a pedophile and said that what happened in my father's funeral never happened and accused me of uh, every relationship i ever had landing in court you didn't do anything about that so you lost quite a few points with that luke i think you should have set that brittle old fool delusional maybe he's projecting with a pedophilia i don't know but uh, oh i think he's going after kevin michael grace i shouldn't have said any of that shit because that's dumb he poses as a journalist he's wrong as fuck Oh, I see you got a, f a fan stalker of mine here. So Hexagram33 asks, what the fuck are you doing, dude? What, what, what's, this pro what's this about? So I've obviously not explained myself well enough. Um, so because he's butthurt that David Cole, I guess, never wanna, wanted to hang out with him. You don't know how old I was when I was watching this stuff, dude. I'm not sure what the motivation is, but you know how these jilted fans act. But uh, he denied it for months on David Cole's Facebook page. What okay, so here, the rising intonation, a, a professional speaker. You're talking about Nedlin's not. You're, you're paranoid. You're delusional. And <laughs> there's evidence. He conspired. He, he plotted with Edwin to 
print out uh, Nazi scum, get out of our town, we don't tolerate fascists, and leave flyers all throughout Los Angeles hoping to get Antifa to reckon and culture event. And it failed like everything that Matt does, but he denied it. Now there's proof. Jim Goad. Oh, so this is uh, Jim Goad going after Matt Ford. Net slash capital MF, A N D lowercase, capital E D dot PDF. There's all the proof you need. I'll probably get a strike just for playing this, to be honest, but I'm just doing it. Why not? It's only this shit channel. Who cares? Who cares, dude? I think Luke had to take it down and everything. So Luke and Jim Goad are old friends at this point, and he's come on to talk about his brand new book. Okay, how about Nick Fuentes? So here's Nick Fuentes. Public. <laughs> now, oh, Bradley's goody two-shoes, wholesome, chungus, 10,000. Okay, so musical quality to his voice, rising pitch level, compelling, entertaining, professional broadcaster. It's like, nah, I'm a little bit more complicated than like wanting a girl in a sundress to just lay my suits out and I wear a fedora and smoke a pipe and go, hey, hey, honey, we're LARPing like it's the 1950s. Like, that's just so insulting. I have a little bit, it's called depth. Okay, it's called death. I have a little so bit... So here, the rising intonation, he's fun to listen to. There, there's excitement, there, there's hope, there, there's drama. More depth to my character than just I'm some kind of, like, sitcom character. I'm sort of playing an important role in world history here. And the idea that, you know, some some silly girl online, like, I'm going to be in direct messages just sort of being, like, funny and flirty and fun it's just it's not it's not me it's just not gonna happen like i said i'm trying to think of i'm trying to think of a scenario where it would be acceptable because so, some people say oh well that means you're gay and it's like well no because rising intonation fun easy to listen to that's uh, hey it's friday okay revenge of the sis all right we're talking professional broadcast quality here they've got the rising intonation the, the melody you know what that means uh, we're on Rumble today. I, I'm making these. I uh, look at some point you're gonna have to learn on your own, but I'm making these to remind you. Mersh is in here at the moment, so I have my my co-host right back. But um, I I will say that um, <clears throat> uh, I am getting sick and tired of being the one that has to tell you to go over there. So what I did was I asked uh, my friend and friend of the show, Pessy. Okay, some rhythm, some upward intonation. Let's see. Organization, right? And I'm thinking probably a lot of. A lot of salaries get paid. It's of course. a lot of bloated. So okay, a little bit of about the frog voice here from Mush. A lot of monotone there. Maybe can't ward off the underlying depression. Sort of like, you know, I'm sure their, their fucking budget is bloated. So, like, it's kind of a grift. Like, and Crenshaw walks around with just wounded warrior guys all the time. All the time. Dude, just, it's a literal human shield. He's he literally is walking I walk around, around with, with a human shield. I walk around with three guys from the Wounded Warrior Project, two of the guys from Black Rifle Coffee, and fucking. <laughs> Jolene. And for some reason, and for some reason, Anomaly. <laughs> Wait, why is he there? I don't know because he's rapping or something. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, man. I, I've I've been I've been uh, anomalies at least lately on Twitter has been pretty fucking good. Um, let's see here. A wounded warrior project uh, contributions ranks uh, ten thousand seven hundred and two out of twenty seven thousand. Whatever. Uh, what is who is this uh, top recipients? What what am I looking at here? Wounded warrior project lobbying. You never looked at Open Secrets? No. Here, read, okay, read let's this. see if we can get some uh, Vox Day in here. 
big uh, QAnon guy. But, uh, what about his, his broadcast quality? Come on, get to, get to Mr. Day, sir. Or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and... It's not all that complex or interesting. The fact of their existence is interesting, but as people, they tend to be boring. The idea of them is fascinating because they are a biological anomaly, an evolutionary mistake or maybe a spiritual deformity. Around 1% of any given population is prone to psychopathy. Okay, I think I found some uh, Vox Day here. I don't I don't need the music mate I'm I'm trying to just play a little Vox Day but uh, conservatism is dead dark stream by Vox Day from two years ago all right maybe maybe we'll get something going here Unauthorized. But they're also not willing to uphold it and establish it as the law of the land. You know, right now, it's only at the circuit court level. They don't want to allow it. Yeah, so that's what the, the non-decisions and so forth. And so... Right. You hear from his voice, he doesn't lack self-confidence. And then there are also two other decisions. I won't bother getting the details, but the, the, the point is that the false hope is now gone. Right. So I'm rising into nation there. The false hope is now gone. There is no more false hope in the conservative non-philosophy. Anyone who calls themselves a conservative, says they stand up for conservative values, etc., etc., is lying to you and attempting to fool themselves. Was it a, a gatekeeping operation from the start? Uh, I don't think necessarily. And certainly there were plenty of of honest right pleasant to listen to some some uh, broadcast quality skills there some musicality and melody to his voice four percent job mortality so any sort of mutant genes of the of the, of the, of the... all right so you got intensity you got some you know high high pitch level of excitement body you know are going to be, make you ill are going to be wiped out and every generation and mutant genes of the body tend to correlate with mutant genes of the mind because the mind is about 80 percent of the genome so if you've got mutant genes of the mind you will have mutant genes of the body so consequently, and this is, this is called the social epistasis amplification model, my colleague Michael Woodley's uh, model, um, the, um, as industrialization has reduced child mortality from 40% to 1%, you've had the rise of these mutants, these people with these mutant ideas. Um, yes, very polished public speaker. And uh, let's try a little Adam Green here. Come on, Adam. Bring them to me. It's time, it's time that we help, they answered for this. This should be... So he is emotionally engaged, which is compelling. This supremacist doctrine should be universally condemned. This should be marginalized. This should be ridiculed. Today, I'm going to prove their genocidal prophecy plan, which is thinly veiled with code and... Okay, so a lot of downward intonation. He's walking you down the staircase, which is not nearly as interesting as when you walk someone up the staircase. And allegorical stories uh, hidden in their, uh, their fables. And this really, we need to raise awareness about Jewish supremacy and Jewish beliefs because it needs to be universally condemned not exalted and respected as if they're the jew the rabbis are wise moral okay so what he's got going on for him is he's emotionally connected to his material he, he believes in it strongly 
uh, doesn't seem to have a, a drama background or a broadcast background, but clearly enunciates his words. Not unpleasant to listen to. I think that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.